podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to welcome smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, where we have conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Chris Stemp. I'm so excited to have on the show this week a true leadership expert, a friend, a mentor, and frankly, a fun guy. Before we get into that, I want you to think about how many episodes of Smart People Podcast you have listened to. Now, for some of you, maybe one three, four, but for some of you, it could be 100, 200, 300. We're so excited and honored to be a part of your commute or your walks, your conversations, and your brain power. And we look forward to another 300 episodes. But as you know, we're constantly striving to get better, and in order to do that, we need your support. If you have found value over the dozens or hundreds of episodes you've listened to, we would love for you to support us and join our community on Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. Along with your support come some really great perks, such as ad-free episodes, guest recommendations, your ability to submit questions directly to guests, and much more on the way. So I know what it's like to hear this on a podcast, trust me, and you think, I'll do it, or, oh, they don't really need it, or, nope, it's free anyways. I know that. But if you can fight that impulse and instead think, you know what, Chris and John have added value, and I want them to be able to continue doing it in a better and better way, patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. All right, so on to our episode. Our featured guest this week is Scott Miller. Scott Miller currently serves as the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership for Franklin Covey. In addition, for the previous eight years, he served as the Chief Marketing Officer of Franklin Covey. And I saw firsthand as his hard work ushered in a new era for Franklin Covey and helped us expand across the globe. But more importantly than his positions or his titles, Scott has over two decades of leadership experience. And honestly, as he admits, it's both good and bad. So I'd like you to strap in for this episode because we are discussing, among other things, his brand new book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. One thing I will say is I have read Scott's book from cover to cover, and I not only appreciated the practical and tactical approach he took, but I also love how easy it was to digest this book as he wrote it with some great stories over his career. And also how nice it was to finally read a book that is not just about the polished side of leadership. So I hope you enjoy this frank and honest discussion with Scott Miller as we talk about his brand new book, Management Mess to Leadership Success. Enjoy. All right, Scott. Well, it is my pleasure to have you on Smart People Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Chris, my honor, man. So look, I'm excited to have this conversation because we have firsthand working experience. And I, I've interviewed some other folks from Franklin Covey, but 
you know, when I think of our interactions, I mean, you and I have had a chance. We've sat down one-on-one over, over lunch, over breakfast. We've worked together. And so I think, and I hope it provides me with some insight that'll be different from maybe any other conversation you've had to talk about this new book. So I'm looking forward to getting a little personal, if you will. You up for that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm as vulnerable as they come. So bring it on. Well, speaking of vulnerability, so we're talking about your brand new book, Management Mess to Leadership Success. And I actually have highlighted here a sentence that I want to read for our audience. You say, I have an intense personality that's often turned up to 11. I've been mean, petty, selfish, and self-absorbed. I've made genuinely good people cry, no doubt caused talent associates to choose to leave the organization. However, you say, but I'm also known as the leader whose division you join if you want your career and skills to blossom. So hearing me read that out loud to tens of thousands of people, how does it feel? Are you okay admitting your faults and your strengths in a book and to the world? I think I'm more than okay. I think it's my superpower, if that doesn't sound too corny. I think the new generation of leaders are tired of these sort of academic tomes and the uh, you know kind of pithy leadership books that come from really smart, but people that maybe don't have a lot of practical leadership experience or don't even know their own blind spots. So I have for decades used kind of my own foibles as an encouragement hopefully a light, not a judge for people. And I have found that the more uh, self-aware, humble, and vulnerable I can be, that people tend to flock to me, at least as a leadership guide, because everyone's got messes. No one is a complete mess, and no one is a complete success in their leadership. But owning your messes and be comfortable with your challenges, of which I have many, and I'm happy to to talk about them today, I think it's a breath of fresh air. I, I like people in my life who do the same thing, and I'm always a little suspicious of those who seem to have too crisp and slick of a package. Well, I will say, given where you live out there in Utah, I'd imagine you come across that crisp, slick package quite often. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> but, you know, there's truth to that. Right. I mean, I'm actually from the East Coast. I was born and raised in central Florida, worked for the Disney company for four years and came to Utah in the late 90s. And I had to learn a whole new culture. I mean, here's a Catholic single kid from Florida plopping down in Provo, Utah. And it was, it was, you know, great in some ways and kind of horrifying in others. I love this state. I love the people, but it was a significant culture shock here where kind of everything tends to wrap up in a nice bow and it all works out on the surface. And that really isn't always the truth in life. Right. One of the things I mo I mean, I just couldn't stop thinking about as I'm reading the book and also knowing you have you always been able to recognize the messes or is that something that has had to have been fostered in you in your leadership roles? Yeah, I have a, I have a long answer for this. So cut me off when I'm, um, I've gone too long, but I, I think my entire life has been sort of two steps forward, one step back, or some maybe cases, one step forward, two step back, kind of successful in spite of myself. You know, I have a pretty short attention span. I, I, I earlier in life was one of those kind of guys who sort of said whatever was on my mind, didn't really have a filter. And as I matured, I realized that was quite selfish that, you know, anybody can just, you know, drop a grenade and run out the door. That's kind of a coward. And so I was spending most of my early years, even into my 40s, kind of emulating people 
who I thought had traits that were successful, when many times they were traits that were maybe efficient, but not really effective. So I have come, honestly, in my 50s, I guess you could say I was a late bloomer, uh, to really realize what it means to have uh, a legacy of personal trustworthiness, a brand where your reputation you know, is kind of your most valuable asset. And I spent most of my life, like Chris, being told to slow down, calm down, talk slower, conform. And I think it was in my 50s where I said, you know what, damn it, just listen faster. Because <laughs> I'm going to talk fast. It's who I am. <laughs> and, you know, like it or not like it, it's kind of who I am. And I'm trying to be more gracious and more diplomatic. But we all have deeply ingrained personality traits. I also will tell you, I have a pretty pronounced stutter. I have been a stutterer my whole life. I've had braces twice. I've had a life of speech pathology. And there are lots of words that I cannot say in public. And so I have just really kind of chosen to own my messes, talk about them freely in the hopes to give license to others to say, you know what, once you know your story and you know your journey and you know what's true about you and not true about you and what you can change, what you can't change, it's, it's quite liberating and free. It's been really a great 50th year for me. Yeah, I mean, they say that actually, I think it's once you get past 30 or 35, something like that, your happiness actually starts to increase due to that self-awareness. Yeah, can I share a story about that with you? Absolutely. So uh, like you, I host a couple of podcasts. One is on iHeartRadio called Great Life, Great Career, and the other is for Franklin Covey also called On Leadership. And I was, I was interviewing a gentleman named Eric Barker, who's a bit of a social scientist. He wrote a book about two years ago called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. It's an excellent book. He talked about the power of dispelling, you know, these sort of adages in life, you know, early bird gets the worm, nice guys finish last, and what's true and not true. And in this interview, he talked about the immense power of owning your own story, kind of knowing what your journey was. And that interview happened the same week I was preparing for an interview with, with um, Viola Davis, the famed actor and actress, producer, director, where she talked about the same was owning her story. Her story is amazing, right? Raised in abject poverty. She didn't know if the power was going to be on, the water would work in her house, where her next meal was coming from. She'd often go to school smelling like, you know, she hadn't had a shower and it was embarrassing. And finally, when she went to Hollywood, all of her friends said, Viola, you've got to have thick skin to survive in Hollywood. So she got really thick skin. And I thought, oh my gosh, that was my same strategy mm. for dealing with kind of Utah, right? From an East Coast guy. Where here, where they say, Scott, you're so funny, that means, Scott, we don't say things like that here, right? It's a very, <laughs> in some ways, kind of plastic society in Utah. And I had also developed very thick skin. You know, don't tread on me. Nothing bothers me. But in fact, of course, everything bothered me. I'm human. I'm vulnerable. I'm, I'm you know, insecure. And then Viola said, the problem when you have thick skin is although nothing gets in, nothing gets out. And when I read that, I thought, oh my gosh, that's so true. I kind of had this rough exterior where I was protecting my brand and always, you know, pretending and masquerading. No, not entirely. We all have, you know, our, our, our private life and our public life. And she said that she really advises people to have translucent skin, transparent skin, not so much where you take on everybody else's crap or opinions about you. And it was really liberating for me, Chris, to say, you know what? I'm going to stop having thick skin, and I'm just going to kind of tell my truth, 
share my foibles in the hopes that other people could benefit from it. And I think it's the key to what's looking like success for my new book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, because I try to be as real and authentic as I possibly can in it. Speaking of that leadership success, I mean, you have enjoyed a very successful career. I actually want to talk about that a little bit. So as you mentioned, you started with Disney, you came to Franklin Covey, and actually, to be honest, I don't know exactly how I came on when you were already the chief marketing officer of a massive firm. So, you know, how did you reach those heights to be in the C-suite, to be in that kind of ivory tower? Uh, what attributes do you have naturally that you would attribute to that rise? Well, none naturally. They're all earned. Mm, okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I was I was born and raised in central Florida when I was 18. I actually joined a U.S. presidential campaign back in 1986, and it went on to win. And I had a choice to either go to Washington with them or not, and I hadn't finished my degree yet, and so I stayed back. I had a great two-year run with that then um, – candidate and their running mate who went on for uh, one term. And then I joined the Disney company and and learned a tremendous amount around just quality, customer service, hard work, recognizing brand, focus on your client and cast member. I worked on the real estate side of the company. It was a tremendous experience. They fired me because I was an immature jerk. And then the Disney company had caught, uh, well, the, the, and then the Stephen Covey organization, the Covey Leadership Center, had caught wind of me at Disney through some meetings. They liked me. They saw some raw potential in me. They saw a pretty, um, a pretty competent professional with a lot of interpersonal quirks and immaturities. And over 23 and a half years now at Franklin Covey, I think I've moved from a independent-minded, self-serving jerk to a collaborative, interdependent leader of others with lots of mistakes and successes along the way. I started in sales. So I spent four years actually as a um, frontline salesperson selling our leadership solutions to colleges and universities and school districts. I then went and did a, a stint in England, came back and I ran our higher education division and then was the general manager of a large, the largest at the time, sales division in Chicago, and then kept working my way up the ladder. And then I think the CEO tapped me to be the first ever chief marketing officer because I wasn't one of those CMOs that just kind of went out on my own passion, right? Whether I loved billboards or loved social or loved direct mail, I really always asked myself, what does sales need? What do our clients need? What will help build our brand? I was very focused on aligning to the CEO's top business priorities. And I think I also saw my key job as not just serving our brand and our customers, but I think the CMO in most companies, Chris, is the chief recruiting officer. I mean, my job was to make sure that our employees were proud of our brand, recognized our reach, saw our sterling reputation, and chose to either join us or more importantly, stay. Hmm. So I kind of saw myself as really less the CMO and more the CRO, the chief kind of recruitment officer. And I think I was successful in helping to, you know, help our chief people officer, Todd Davis, keep a really historically low turnover rate. Because you know, when you've got a valuable employee right now, I mean, they're being poached every hour of the day. And if you can inoculate them 
and not just a great place to work with great leaders, but be proud of their brand, they'll say no to 10 more thousand dollars across the street. Oh, yeah. Hey, Chris, how long have we known each other? I think it's coming up on about 25 years. Do you actually know what I do for my job? Well, first, that would require us still talking to each other. But aside from that, I think something about managing, you manage like projects or people or technology. I actually have no idea what you do. Sure, sure. I manage teams and I have to build out teams. And you know what? Hiring is hard. It takes forever. You have to go through tons of applications and it's just this huge slog. And that's why I'm pumped to have ZipRecruiter sponsoring the show. So just head over to ZipRecruiter.com slash smart people. ZipRecruiter definitely makes hiring easy. It sends your jobs to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, and John, you probably already know this, but ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash smart people. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-M-A-R-T-P-E-O-P-L-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash smart people. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to me interviewing someone. There's a couple of things there I have to go into. One, I'm fascinated by this idea. You talk about when you left Disney and you came to Franklin Covey, you thought of yourself or they thought of you as somebody who could execute you know, a strong professional, but perhaps lacking some of those interpersonal skills. At that moment in time, did you recognize your lack of leadership and interpersonal skills or your abrasive nature? Did you know it at the time? No, that's a great question. I think we all have blind spots and sometimes our strengths become our weaknesses when taken too far. So I think in my 20s, one of my strengths was sort of a self-inflated um, sense of confidence. And I, I think sometimes, you know, that fake it till you make it has some value in it. Mm -hmm. And so I had a, you know, a fairly a confident sense of self. I was fairly outgoing and charismatic and, 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 and high energy. And some people valued it, some did not. And so I think I was generally blind to how those strengths had kind of become weaknesses, kind of turned too high taken too far. And, you know, I was single until I was 41. And not that, not that you have to be married to be effective by any measure, but it really wasn't, I think, until in my early 40s when I started to have a really serious girlfriend. You know, I had relationships and, you know, they were up and down in life. And I was a bit of a tiger by the tail. But when I got married, it was really the value that my much younger but wiser wife really would say, Scott, you can't say that. Scott, you mm. can't do that. And, you know, every ride home from a dinner party was me being lambasted. Scott, what were you doing arguing with the host, right? I mean, so I think it was surrounding myself in my really 30s and 40s with older people than me. I've always had this idea, Chris, of friending up. It's a phrase that I've kind of coined. Maybe I haven't coined it, but I've always learned from people who are older and wiser and better traveled and made more stakes and more successful as I kind of looked at. So what have you done that I could learn from? 
But to your point, no, I think in my 20s and early 30s, I was, I was blind to my blind spots. And when people would try to coach me out of them, I was too self-absorbed to really be open to their feedback. Now, this, the follow-on question to that, though, is do you feel that those same characteristics help propel you through the difficulties of the corporate environment? Oh, no question, right? I mean, a sense of resilience, of not letting people bring me down uh, you know, or trash-talking me. I, I'm a pretty resilient person, and I recognize in life there are going to be people who like you and those who don't. I have more detractors than I probably care to count, and I hopefully have more supporters than I can count. But I think some of those strengths, no doubt, question. I mean, I will, I read a book in my 20s called The Go-Getter. And it's such a phenomenal book that Dave Ramsey, a good friend of mine, bought the rights to and now publishes it. And this Go-Getter book is a must-read for everyone in the world. And it talks about having just a relentless work ethic to get it done. I knew I was never going to outsmart anyone because I didn't have an MBA or an Ivy League education, but I was willing to outwork everyone. And I once heard the former governor of Wisconsin, Tommy Thompson, who actually ran for president back in the 90s, didn't win, and became George W. Bush's, I think, secretary of HHS. And I heard him once in the early 90s say basically the same thing. I can't outsmart you, but I sure as hell will outwork you. And that was kind of my mentality that really got me into the C-suite was just being able to work harder. And honestly, I look back, I wish I'd worked smarter. I think I worked too much and worked too hard. <laughs> well, but you, you know, do, it paid off. You do. I mean, you do have that reputation. I know, and I've seen it firsthand. You work seemingly all the time. I don't really know if you sleep, but maybe we'll, maybe we'll get to that point. Oh, but, I do. But see, the thing that is so, the reason I'm honing in on this is because I tend to go to the other side of things. I am like abundantly aware of other people's opinions and perceptions. I think it serves me in my career, but it also hinders progress in, in whatever it is, because you do take too much to heart, too much personally. Uh, you do want to kind of soften the things around you. And I, and I know a lot of our listeners feel this way. A lot of people in the world that I deal with in workshops. So where is that balance and do you think that, in fact, it's better to be, as you call it, abrasive or direct, but also hardworking or empathetic and communicative, but lack some of that drive? You know, I might take it in a little bit different direction. Chapter 16 in my book is called Make It Safe to Tell the Truth. When I came to Franklin Covey back in 1996, Stephen Covey had a profound but slow impact on my maturity. And it took a while for me to really absorb the difference between being efficient and being effective. I was a very, and sometimes still, very efficient person. I have a propensity to love and urgency. I'm urgency addicted. I like to fight fires. I like to feel important. If a fire doesn't exist, I'm known to create one, metaphorically, <laughs> so I can rush in and save the day. I admit that about myself. And I never understood this concept of, being effective versus efficient. I liked to do lists. Right? My Saturdays were like insanely busy checking off things. I'd have more done by 9 a.m. than anybody else in my life had done by 9 p.m. And as I settled into my 30s, I realized that what might be good in terms of cleaning my apartment and detailing my car and playing tennis and going to the gym and going to grocery shopping 
wasn't working in my personal life with my family, with my parents, my brother? Why didn't I have a, you know, a relationship like, a, a, you know, a, um, a girlfriend? Why, why are my friendships kind of burning out? I, I was fatiguing people. I was fun to be around for a night, but perhaps not a week in Europe. And I began to realize I had to be more self-aware about how effective I was with people. And literally, Stephen Covey, who I'll mention a lot in this interview because the guy was arguably one of the wisest men in my lifetime, said, with people, fast is slow, and slow is fast. And I had to learn to slow down with relationships in my life. That took me a decade, and it had a transformative effect on my reputation, my brand, my personal trustworthiness. People always felt sort of on edge and anxious around me. And in some ways that was good because I was motivating and productive. But in other ways, people had to like, you know, take a volume after being with me for an hour, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I'm the kind of guy where you never ask me to give a eulogy at a funeral, but I'll be the first person to evacuate you from a burning building, right? I will get it done and get you out. You'll need therapy, but I'll get you out alive. So as I have moved into my 50s, I've really come to appreciate life balance more. I think I appreciate understanding my own blind spots. I've written a whole chapter around the value of feedback, and the more you accept it, the more you seek it out, the more, Chris, you can determine what's valuable, what's invaluable. A lot of people's feedback to you isn't about you. It's about them and about their unhappiness with themselves them projecting their jealousies on you. So I started to get really, really uh, rapidly interested in hearing everything everyone thought about me. Mm. And, you know, I, I perseverated on some of it. And I probably took too much of it to heart. I probably ignored too much. And then over years of just nonstop feedback where my brand was, you can tell Scott anything. Doesn't mean he'll accept it. But I made my brand bring it on. I've become much more discerning on which people I ask for feedback and how and when I choose to implement it. And I think over time that's built a better reputation for being more self-aware and really now being more um, insightful on my blind spots because we all have them. I will say one of the greatest things I've learned at Franklin Covey, and you do mention it in this book, which by the way, I love how you parse it into really impactful, but easy to digest pieces. And this one on feedback is great. But, you know, Franklin Covey kind of taught me that feedback is great. It's valuable, but you don't have to take it. Like, I mean, you take it, but you don't have to do anything with it. Feedback is everyone's, right? It's their opinion. And it just helps you mold yourself into the person you want to become with as many data points as possible, um, as opposed to you don't have to internalize everything. That was a big paradigm shift for me. Yeah, I think that's come from my learning, right? So in this book, I've written Management Mess to Leadership Success. There's 30 challenges we all face as leaders, and they're really based on leadership theories. And most of mine are horror stories. I share a lot of mistakes. This one in particular, Challenge 16, I'm enormously passionate about. I named it Make It Safe to Tell the Truth. Actually, Todd Davis, our chief people officer, coined the phrase in his book, Get Better, and it's all about this, my, my opinion and Todd's opinion that most people will not tell you the truth if you ask them. How was my speech? Oh, it was great. You killed it. You were amazing. How was my book? Oh, I loved it. Best book ever. No, it wasn't. It sucked. 
you've got to make it safe for other people to tell you the truth. So really getting quality, actionable feedback is less about the feedback provider. It's more about the feedback requester. You have to make it safe for other people to tell you their truth. Doesn't mean it's always the truth. And so there's many ways to do that, right? Is make it your brand. Say, I really want to have you give me feedback on how I am going to behave in this week's retreat. Would you just take some notes? Would you kind of watch me? And at a safe time after the retreat, would you tell me what it's like to be at a two-day retreat with me? What's it like to be at a staff meeting? What's it like, you know, on a project with me? And then that person will tell you all sorts of things. Write them down. Clarify. Don't defend. Don't disregard. Ask, you know, some for some specifics and then decide, do you choose to adopt them in your life or not? And let the person know, thank you for that. That's helpful. I'm probably not going to choose to change that but I'm so appreciative of you telling me that. I'll be mindful. And then after that, be very deliberate with who you choose to take feedback from. Usually my feedback is from people that are more senior than me, more seasoned, more educated, been around the block. I, I tell you, I was signing books this past week at Nordstrom's in Salt Lake. Believe it or not, Nordstrom had a pop-up booth and they asked me to come sign books. <laughs> and a local, I know, a local bookstore sponsored it. And there's this young lady who was 20 who kept giving me feedback on what I was saying to the customers. Now, listen, I'm 50. I'm a parent of three. I'm on my 10th anniversary of my wedding with my wife. I've got two bucks in the pipeline. I've got, you know, 30 years. I really wasn't craving her feedback. I finally turned to her and said, I got to tell you, I'm really not taking any more feedback from you. Do me a favor. Keep your opinions to yourself. I got it covered. I mean, I, I just told her straight. Right. She was 20. I, and I kind of, I didn't lay her out, but I made it very clear. I need you to stop telling me what you like and don't like about what I'm saying. Because frankly, I don't care. Yeah. And I kind of use those words. I said, I'm glad you're here. I'm grateful for your support. But you got to keep your opinions to yourself. And most people would be horrified to say that. But it came quite natural because I didn't care. Hey. If my CEO came up or if my wife came up or one of my mentors, trust me, I'd be all over it. Mm -hmm. So I've become much more deliberate and I advise everybody else to be thoughtful about the type of feedback and who you receive it from and then decide deliberately, do you choose to adopt it in your life or do you not? This week's episode is brought to you by Rothy's. Have you heard about this company making stylish shoes for women and girls out of recycled plastic water bottles? Oh, and they're insanely comfortable and machine washable. Rothy's has quickly grown to a most loved gotta have them brand. It's no surprise they have over a thousand nearly perfect reviews. Rothy's shoes are stylish, sustainable, and comfortable enough for everyday wear. But you don't have to take it from me. I don't wear them, but luckily my wife Amanda does. Amanda, what do you think about your Rothy's? I love my Rothy's. I got the gray camo sneaker and they are super cute and go with everything that I own. They're honestly the most comfortable pair of shoes that I have ever had. John, I know this is going to kill you, but I can't wait to see what new colors and patterns that Rothy's comes out with in the future. Oh, can't wait. Rothy's are the everyday flats for life on the go. 
They come in a wide range of colors and patterns, and they're available in four different silhouettes. Plus, they're constantly launching new styles, so you're guaranteed to find a pair, or three, that you'll love. Since Rothy's are seamlessly crafted from recycled water bottles, they're ultra comfortable as soon as you slip them on. That's right, there is zero break-in period in these shoes. Plus, Rothy's always comes with free shipping and free returns and exchanges. No risk, no worries, no reason not to try. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com smart. Go to rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash smart to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Yeah, and I think even that story kind of illuminates a lot of what you talk about, where leadership is not about being strong or about being weak. It's not about being nice or mean. It's about being human and then getting your team into the right spot. And the 30 different steps you talk about all kind of allow you to be that person that is going to make others better. Which one of these 30 do you think comes easiest to you? And which one of these 30 do you feel you are still working on the most? Yeah, Chris, I'll go there. I want to, I'm going to wrap up a thought you just said. I, I think you're, you're so prescient on your description of leadership. Leadership is not about being liked. I think it's about being trusted, honored, and respected. I think one of the leadership types that I dislike the most is the leader who wants to be popular. They find themselves saying yes way too often. And, and they're the type of leader that always agrees with the last person they talked to, right? Stand for something or fall for everything. Doesn't mean you need to be a jackass. Doesn't mean you need to be rude, but it does mean that you probably need to have high courage conversations and be able to talk straight. So, so in fact, those are the two that I think I'm the best at. Challenge 12 is lead difficult conversations and challenge 13 is talk straight. They kind of go hand in hand and they're the ones that I'm the best at. I find that some of the best leaders I've seen or reported to are those who are not afraid to sit me down and call me out. Bill Bennett in particular was the president of our company 10 years ago. He's gone on to a great career and in fact now is the president of a competitor of Franklin Covey's. We're still very good friends and he was my boss. He gave me my first big break at Franklin Covey, promoted me into the role of general manager in the Chicago region. I moved to Chicago. About four months into my job, Bill comes out, sits down for a scheduled meeting in the office and says to me, I'm not kidding you, quote, Scott, you're standing at a gas station and you're holding a match, end quote. <laughs> and I remember to this day, the color of the red leather chair I was sitting in with the brass rivets on it and the mahogany handles wanting to fade away because Bill was irritated. I had become a little bit of a gossip. I was sharing things that I shouldn't have been, not like SEC, you know, proprietary stuff or trades. But I was, you know, well, guess who's on the ins and who's on the outs and who's getting fired and who's getting promoted. And I was just dishonoring Bill's confidences of his executive team. And it was one of the best leadership moments of my life because I love to know where I stand. 
And I find it emotionally crippling to always kind of be in that state of paranoia, never knowing if you're on the in or the out with your boss and misinterpreting her walking into her office in the morning and closing her door with you're going to get fired when she's just had a fight with her 16-year-old daughter, right? Mm -hmm. And then you transfer onto your – and I hate working in an environment of paranoia. So I chose early on in my career, I was always going to let my people know where they stand by having high courage conversations, by talking straight, by discussing the undiscussable, by moving outside of my comfort zone about your productivity, about your personal hygiene, about your ability to collaborate in the office, about your inability to give anybody else credit, about phrases you use that don't you know, work well with your brand. I mean, I'm brutal, but I'm brutal in a way increasingly that keeps you whole. Because to answer your second question, I think the one that I'm the worst at is the next challenge we've named balance courage and consideration. Because for too long, I mentioned earlier, I was the guy that just said things that no one else had ever said to you in your life that were probably true. But it, Chris, it probably also damaged their self-esteem and probably wrecked their self-confidence and might even have damaged their self-worth, which is God-given. Right. Everybody has the same self-worth until you've sat with Scott Miller for an hour with the door closed and I just let it rip. And what I realize is not everyone can handle my tell it like it is straight style. So I have really struggled with balancing what is my unabashed, shocking courage with this vacuum of consideration. And you can still some tell someone things they need to hear and not make them cry or make them ashamed or emasculate them. So I have worked enormously hard and I think I've succeeded as a leader now to be able to deliver hard news in gentle ways that makes people leave my office saying, that was brutal, but Scott's got my back. And, I, and I'm proud of that. But I do still struggle with always being mindful of being effective and not efficient and balancing consideration with courage. Right. And, you know, we talk about this through the lens of leadership. And as we mentioned in this chief marketing officer role for a massive company, the amount of people you were interacting with, the team you had, you had to learn these things or else you very quickly would not have been successful. So well, go ahead. Well, well, that's true because I was like the eighth vice president of marketing in like 15 years. <laughs> and I was determined not to follow that same thing, same path, right? I mean, I did not want my career to you know fizzle out as the CMO. The average, I think the average tenure of a CMO in America is always less than two years on average. So I was determined to make my team super relevant, build these careers. You know, I'll be honest, I took that team from one person to 35 people in eight years. Wow. And I think one of the reasons that team grew into, you know, historic impact was people were relevant. We knew where we stood. We did not rest on our laurels. I was constantly giving people feedback, building their careers, hopefully building their incomes. And when I left it, I think there was a culture of transparency and courage that was unique to an otherwise fairly courteous culture at Franklin Covey, which is nice, but not always valuable if you really want to know where you stand 
and not be caught off guard. Right, right. Well, and you talked about the tenure of being the CMO. How long were you in that role? Yeah, just about eight and a half years as the actual chief marketing officer. I actually stepped away on my own accord a year ago. I am still a member of the executive team. I moved to become the executive vice president of thought leadership, but I chose to pass that on to someone else because, you know what, I think another another um, talent of influential leaders is not always being the genius in the room, but being the genius maker. And I learned that from Liz Wiseman in her unbelievably insightful book, Multipliers, changed my leadership life. I think it is the best leadership book ever written, Multipliers. Hmm. And I realized, you know what? I don't need to be the genius any, anymore. I need to be the genius maker. And as we looked at you know, understanding SEO and user paths and user interface on the web, and we were moving from print to digital, it was time for me to move on and let leadership come in who was more nimble, more adept, more technically savvy, and take it to a level that I could not. And so I think it was tough but wise for me to step away before I dragged the team down and was asked to step away. I was way ahead of that boot, but I've always been pretty good at being one or two years ahead of the boot, always reinventing and reestablishing my brand and my relevance. I think people tend to hang on too long to their safety net. Well, and I think people do that not only because of a fear of change, but perhaps a uncertainty on what is to come and what they can do with it. And I would say with you, I would I would imagine certainty or doing the same thing or repetition is actually the worst thing for somebody like you would be my you know, guess. It, it, it is. It is. It isn't to say I'm, you know, not stable, right? I mean, I've been in this firm for 23 years. I That's had one true. marriage and, you know, I've been married for 10 years. You know, um, I'll share with you. I know I'm talking a lot, but I, I, my, my whole life has been the beneficiary of being around these such wise people. I've been so grateful. A dear friend of mine who I think you know, her name is Judy Henricks, yep. longtime associate at Franklin Covey, one of the wisest people I know. She's now uh, an executive coach for speakers, lives in St. Louis. She said to me something I'll never forget. She said, Scott, in everyone's career, there comes a time. When you've given 90% of all that you can give your employer and you've taken from them 90% of everything they have to offer you and the next 10% giving it or taking it just isn't worth it. I thought it was so wise. And so for me, I've always asked myself in every role that I've had, what's my percent? Say 84%, 92%, 130%. And I think I've done a pretty good job of always kind of hitting that 90% range and deciding to move on and not stagnating. And it was Whitney Johnson who wrote many books, including Build an A-Team and um, Disrupt Yourself. When I interviewed her, she said the average person has about a three-year subconscious kind of psychological career span for a job. And I think I've done kind of the same thing. I tend to have between, I tend to go about six years. In my last two years, I kind of um, have to artificially boost it up. And I do. I don't ever phone it in. But I've learned that I like to take risks, but I don't want to take stupid risks. It was Seth Godin, who's become a dear friend of mine, who taught me the difference between being fearless and being reckless. Mm. 
And I think for too many years in my life, I was confusing the two. I was acting fearless, but I was sometimes being reckless and finding myself in, in messes. Not reckless like with, you know, relationships or sure. reckless, but reckless with my own brand. Not with, you know, not with like drugs or that kind of stuff. Sure, Just, sure, sure. I was, I was, I was thinking I was fearless, but I was being reckless. And so now I'm trying to really make sure where am I at that three year disrupt yourself? Where am I at the 90%? Where am I at the fearless versus reckless? And it's those things that really motivate me to write this book and share a lot of these learnings with um, hopefully a large audience around the world. This week's episode of Smart People Podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, trauma, anger, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential and it's so convenient. You can now get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions plus chat and text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option and for Smart People Podcast listeners, get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com slash smart. So why not get started today? Head over to betterhelp.com slash smart. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with the counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash smart. One more time, it's betterhelp.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Well, actually, let's talk about that for a minute. This idea of maybe it's the fearless versus reckless, but as somebody who has transitioned, right? Disney, Covey, all the way up through the ranks, chief marketing officer, sat in the room, sat at the board table, now in charge of thought leadership. But for those listening, myself included, what advice would you give to continue growing in your career to add more value to the world and your family? Yeah, I've got two, two very specific pieces of advice. It was, again, Seth Godin, who I think is one of the most abundant, generous, deliberate, wise people I've ever encountered. He endorsed my book, which I'm honored. I mean, you know, you know your day and your life is complete when Seth Godin writes on your book cover, um, this is the new classic on authentic leadership. He endorsed my book, Management Mess. I'm so honored to know Seth. He, he wrote this book that I think has... has rocked the marketing world called This Is Marketing, right? Number one bestseller about six months ago. Seth is the real deal. If you're not following Seth's blog, you need to. He's, he says in his book something called the smallest viable market. And he says everybody in business should be thinking about not the largest viable market. Don't try to boil the ocean. What's your smallest viable market? Who is the one person that wants to read your article or follow you on LinkedIn? or look at your Instagram, or buy your product. Find that one person and help them. And then who is the second person? Find them, solve their problem, connect with them. And then who is the third person? I think one of my challenges is, I try to be all things to all people, right? I'm now an Inc. columnist, every week in Inc. magazine. I'm, I've got an iHeart radio program. I've got this you know, largest 
leadership newsletter in the world, right? I'm writing three books. I'm, I'm like trying to be everything to everyone and it's not going to work. Yeah, but that's because you don't get, sleep. Well, I do sleep actually, <laughs> but um, uh, I, I do sleep, but I, um, but I like to be productive because life is short. But I think this concept from Seth around um, exercising the discipline and the restraint not to try to be everything to everyone and understand what is your smallest viable market. I think it's great for everybody's brand who's trying to, you know, post articles on LinkedIn. What, what is it you can be an expert about? And here's the other advice I would give people on their careers. Um, I think people try in general to harvest too soon. Of all the 32 plus amazing solutions that Franklin Covey authors, and offers. I, I'm an unabashed evangelist for the Franklin Covey Company. We created a video 20 years ago called The Law of the Harvest. You can Google it. It basically was an interview with this Idaho potato farmer. And in the middle of this like six minute video, he says something profound. I'm gonna, I'm gonna massacre it, but it's the best career advice I ever heard as it describes growing potatoes. And he said, and, and this is like, you can picture him, right? He's got overalls on, he's in his late 60s, his fingernails are covered in dirt, there's dust flying everywhere. The guy's probably been bankrupt three or four times as most farmers are, I don't know that. But he says, you can't control mother nature. So we deal with all these, all these you know, variables in life. You gotta be nimble, you gotta be, you know, just work hard, hope for the best and expect the worst. And he says, Every few years, we don't plant potatoes. We plant a money-losing crop. Like, I think he says alfalfa. Because what that does is, although we lose money on it, that crop returns to the soil nutrients that will allow us to repair the soil in the following year or two, create much more robust, bigger, tastier, better potatoes. And I think the metaphor is so valuable to our careers. I think people try to harvest too quickly in their career. They want the next promotion, the next increase, the next title, when there's a time to plant and there's a time to harvest. And there's a time in your career when you're not ready for either and you might need to stay a little longer in your job, take a lateral promotion, you know, take a sideways position to learn a new skill, when that's your quote alfalfa, and what you're really doing is you're building your brand, you're proving your worth, you're delivering on results, you're ensuring that you are dependable, not complacent, not you know under ambitious. You can't you know plant money losing crops for three years in a row; they'll go out of business. But I think it's the best metaphor ever. So I have internalized that, and I've sometimes stayed in positions longer than I wanted to but I wanted to prove to the CEO or the board of directors or our investors that I was in it for more than just me. I was in it for the greater good. And it's always, always returned dividends to me. I love that analogy. That might be one of my favorite things. I mean, I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this, but this podcast was started because the, the my producer, John, and myself, we had worked for these big, you know, Fortune 100 firms, and we kind of found ourselves a little lost. wasn't exactly what we wanted to do, 
And so we were trying to figure out what is it that I want to do in my time on this planet? And I just wish I would have thought earlier about this idea, right? Like you can't, I'm 26 you can't, at the time, right? You can't harvest right then. And sure, everything happens to reason. It all happened. It worked out and I'm at the best place I've ever been in all honesty, but the struggle didn't have to be there the whole time. If I just realized this was me planting the alfalfa, you know what I mean? You know, I think, I think your, your validation of it makes me even more excited about it. I, I share a lot of these stories and these insights in my book, Management Mess to Leadership Success. It's actually number two on the hot new releases on Amazon right now. I saw Not that. I Congratulations, by the way. Well, thank you, Chris. Not because I wrote a great book, but because I think I was able to synthesize and integrate a lot of this wisdom that I didn't know in my 20s. Like you have the benefit. Of, you know, I didn't come up come up into most of this until my 40s and early 50s. And so there are no overnight successes. You know, you see people burst on the TED stage. You see people burst on Instagram. You know, I was interviewing Nellie Galan. Nellie Galan was, um, is one of the most famous producers ever of the Latin um, TV station Telemundo. And she was one of Donald Trump's original um, apprentices. And she's written some great books called, um, she has a new one coming out called Buy Buildings, Not Shoes. And it's a book called Self-Made. And she says, you, you don't see her hundreds of failures on The Apprentice. You don't see her hundreds of no's when you see her best-selling book, right? And what I found, people and successful people all have these decades of planting, planting, fertilizing, hoeing, watering, weeding, planting alfalfa. What most people see now is these big successes. There's no such thing. Maybe, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's some successes on Pinterest or Instagram. I don't care. 99.9% <laughs> .9 of people like you and me that begin to build some influence and some success, you don't see the 30 years behind it. You know, I was interviewing Stephen M. R. Covey, who is the eldest son of Dr. Covey. He wrote a book called The Speed of Trust. And this book has gone on to sell 2 million copies, Chris. It is the most influential book on building a high-trust culture and a high-trust brand ever written. And Stephen, I interviewed Stephen and said, Stephen, uh, was it tough to be raised under you know, your famous father, Stephen R. Covey, right? His book, The Seven Habits, has sold 30 million copies. It's in you know, 50 languages. It is arguably the most influential book, nonfiction book of all time. Mm -hmm. I said, was it tough to be under his shadow? And did, were you, did you feel pressure to write your own book? And he said, you know, I didn't, Scott, because I had nothing to say. I had nothing. I was you know, the president of the company, and I was working hard. He said, but it wasn't until one day about 10 years ago in his 40s that he finally had something to say. And he said, and I went and, went and wrote a book and it became a bestseller. And I think that inspired me not to write a book until I had something to say. Mm. And as I looked at all the options and I had been offered many book deals before and co-authorships. I thought, you know what? That's not my book. And I resisted it. And I think this was my book. I've got three or four books that are in various stages of development. I'm the co-author of a new book coming out in October called Everyone Deserves a Great Manager. But this current book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, is my version of I've got something to say, which is life is full of messes. Own them. Be proud of them. Don't wallow in them. Try not to repeat them. 
recognize we're all on this journey from mess to success. And don't be afraid to use your challenges, your vulnerabilities as a badge of honor. I often will open a speech and say, in fourth grade, the principal had a decision to make with every student. Does he put them into the advanced track, the middle track, or the slow, low track? Everybody got put into one, and you stayed there for fourth and fifth and sixth grade. And my luck of the draw, I don't know if it was a test score. I don't know if it was my IQ, my personality, but I was in fourth grade put into the, quote, slow track. And I was in the slow track for fourth and fifth and sixth grade. And I cannot probably calculate the mess that that created in me in junior high school, in high school. My SATs took me 10 years to get through my undergraduate degree, my self-esteem. I share that. And it was, I'm sure, I look back, it was probably one of the worst things ever done to me because mm-hmm. it made me believe I was slow. I was not smart. Damn it, I am crazy smart. Mm-hmm. And I am, I am crazy creative. And I have an incomparable work ethic. I share that. Are you putting yourself in the slow track? Are you putting yourself in the middle track? Are you putting yourself in the advanced track? What are you saying to your kids? What are you saying to the people on your team? Are you metaphorically putting your own team members into an advanced track, middle track, or slow track? So I hope this book is inspiring to people to be introspective, own their story, own their journey, decide what is true and not true about you. What's a mess and can you turn that mess into a success? I know you can. I did it for myself and I hope that book provides some permission for people by the millions to move from mess to success. First of all, I really appreciate your time. I love hearing from you, learning from you. You have helped me in my career. And this book, as you mentioned, not only is it already, you know, one of the top on Amazon and and as of this recording, it hasn't formally released. Now, when people, when our listeners hear this, it will have just been released. But the other thing I will say about it, and my listeners know this, I don't read every single book from guests that we have on the show. It just would not be possible. But I read yours and the, the one of the primary reasons you make it easy to learn in this book. So for those listening who are thinking, you know, I don't have another, I don't have time for another leadership book or I can't, it's actionable. It's not theoretical. It's not uh, just some academic, like you said. So I highly recommend it. And I appreciate you being on. I appreciate you putting this in the world. And uh, I appreciate all the help you've given me in my professional career. Chris, thank you for your friendship. I look forward to your book coming out. I'll do my best to evangelize it because I think you are like Seth Godin. Perhaps you're the next Seth Godin. Your whole brand is about abundance, lifting people up, sharing great ideas. And so I look forward to being an evangelist for your brand in the future as well. Appreciate that, Scott. Thanks again. Thank you, Chris. And another episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Scott Miller. Scott's book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow, comes out Tuesday, June 18th. So depending on when you listen to this, it could be today or it could be last week. 
All right, some quick housekeeping. If you ever want to reach out to us, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. The easiest way to support us is heading over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and review over there. But if you want to go a little bit above and beyond, you can head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And you can become a patron and support us on a monthly basis. If you want to sign up for the newsletter, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode. Mm -hmm.